BBOR, Black Box Online Radio, coming to you from West Virginia, Black Box Ned 88 on Instagram, for the bonus podcast. And this week on the channel, things are happening a little bit differently. The majority of the episodes are going to be devoted to the Long Island serial killer. And as I said on Monday's episode, it really appears that the Long Island serial killer mystery is heavily connected to another true crime case, and that is the disappearance and the discovery of the remains of Shannon Gilbert. Now, it's possible that Shannon Gilbert was murdered by the Long Island serial killer, but it is not uh, conclusive, and the authorities also do not believe that Shannon was one of the Long Island serial killer's actual victims. In my own fresh take on the subject as a newcomer to the case, I'm definitely starting to lean that way, of course. We don't know everything, and there are a lot of suspicious circumstances surrounding the death of Shannon Gilbert, and we'll be talking about a lot of them today. But first, I would like to remind you guys that anybody can download this show for free at Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. You can download the audio of this program as a pure podcast, take it on the go anywhere and anyhow. And one more time, Launchpad 1, there's a link to that in the description box. And also a very big thank you to everybody who checked out the release party episode for the book Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned Dahan. It is a novel. It is a murder mystery, so to speak. But there's a link to that in the description box as well. It's now available on Amazon. And a lot of people were requesting a print version. It's only... um been released electronically, but um, I saw a lot of people in the comments section saying that they wanted a print version, so I'll see what I can do, and perhaps in the near future there will be a print version of Killer on a White Horse coming out on Amazon soon. And another great way to support the channel, in addition to just listening to some of the other episodes, using the free download page and checking out the book, Another great way to support the channel is to go over to the Teespring page, have a look at some of the t-shirts, almost all sizes and colors are listed, and remember, being weird is not a crime. Now because this week is a little bit different, you'll see in the title that this is a true crime talk radio episode. Those normally come out on Tuesdays, but I thought it would be a very good time to talk about many subjects at once, and while the majority of this episode will be devoted to the uh, death of Shannon Gilbert, as well as the Long Island serial killer, there'll be some other things uh, included at the end. The first um, way I would um, get back to the, the material on the Long Island serial killer is say that I need to give a shout out to Tina, who sent me a message on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box, and Tina shared with me two PDFs. One was of the deposition of Michael Pack, the man who was driving Shannon Gilbert. Shannon Gilbert was an escort. She used Craigslist to advertise her services the way that many of the Long Island serial killers' victims used um, Craigslist. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the Long Island serial killer is referred to as the Craigslist Ripper. So this guy, Michael Pack, Pack is spelled P-A-K, he um, drove Shannon to meet a client on Long Island near Oak Beach, near Gilgo Beach, and then the client's name was Joseph Brewster. Also have his deposition, but in this episode, I'd first like to talk about the deposition of Michael Pack, the driver. Because in the film Lost Girls, which I responded to on Tuesday, one of the characters says something very, very clearly. She says, I don't care how messed up I am. I don't care what drugs I am on. 
if I am in any state of mind to walk, I'm going to the driver. I don't care how messed up I am because he is the safety net. So in the early AM hours in 2010, Michael Pack drove Shannon Gilbert to that home on Long Island, and then there's a 23-minute 911 call that was made at 4.51 in the morning. And then even in the background, male voices couldn't be heard, which seemed to be Michael Pack and Joseph Brewster. Michael Pack is someone who is a very odd individual in his own right, because a lot of the things he said are, are, are really just synonymous with I don't recall in this deposition, th things that you think he would be able to remember. And it's not only about Shannon Gilbert, but also about details from his personal life and so on. So Shannon is seeing the client. At 4.51 in the morning, she makes the 911 call. Then she leaves this house on, on Long Island, and she's just going up and down, banging on people's doors, saying, they're coming after me, someone is trying to kill me. And she actually gets the attention of a lot of people, and there are numerous uh, 911 calls that are made after this. At least two other residents called 911. And then Shannon disappeared into the marsh, and she was never seen or heard from alive again. This begins the, um, I guess you'd say, the groundwork for the film Lost Girls, which I talked about on Tuesday, which zones in on Shannon's mother, Mari, as she's trying to search for her daughter. And then the authorities are brought in, they're searching the marshy areas of Long Island, and this is when they discover the first four confirmed victims of the Long Island serial killer, the people who have been put into burlap sacks and they were buried into the ground. Perhaps that's a more famous um, image that can come to mind, and they are known as the Gilgo Four. So some, let's just read off the names of the victims of the Long Island serial killer one more time. Melissa Bartolome, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Amberlyn Costello, and Megan Waterman. Now, there are four victims that are found very close together, and even in the film Lost Girls, they were described as being evenly spaced apart, but I think that that is purely done on an approximation. And then the um, next victim that was found after the Gilgo Four was named Jessica Taylor, who was um, um, 20 years old at the time and found a substantial distance away from them, but closer to the... Um, four victims was the unidentified Asian male, and I've said before he was a cross-dresser. Then they have Jane Doe number six, who is even farther down the um, down the beach. This is all in the Gilgo Beach area, by the way. And the, there was a toddler girl that was found nearby Jane Doe number six, but she wasn't related to her. She was actually related to a uh, different uh, Jane Doe, and um, that was um, identified through DNA. And um, that was the ninth victim that was found. So you, as you see, there are many women and at least one biological male who have been murdered and their remains have been discarded. With Shannon Gilbert, though, does she actually fall into this category? Because one of the most um, perplexing things about researching this case and trying to use sources that are available to the media, even sources like the deposition of somebody like Michael Pack, the driver for Shannon Gilbert, is... We have so much info on her, but as we're going to see, a lot of the facts about Shannon Gilbert are pointing away from the Long Island serial killer. Who's the person who's responsible for putting those women's bodies into burlap and burying them at Gilgo Beach? I mean, it just there seems to be a very big 
set of inconsistencies between Shannon Gilbert and those other crimes. So the first point I would like to say about Michael Pack's deposition is that he is absolutely unaware of all of the um all of the specifics of his own life. They ask him, did you go to college? And he said, yeah, I got like a BA or a BS, I forget. And they're like, well, it's a bachelor degree. Is it bachelor of arts or bachelor of sciences? I don't remember, but it was in history. And then he also says he took graduate education courses, but isn't really sure about what. I mean, it was something about like finance or something. He doesn't seem to recall very specific details about his own life. And another um, point about Michael Pack is that he was much older than I thought he was, even watching the film Lost Girls, as well as looking at photos of him. I'm not going to be showing his photo, by the way, because uh, he has never been charged with anything, and it doesn't appear that he is um, going to be a likely suspect in the murder of Shannon Gilbert. Instead, I just But looking at photos, I thought he was much younger. He was actually born on July 5th, 1969, the same day Darlene Farron passed away, and he came to the United States in 1974 as a child. His last name is Pack, spelled P-A-K, as I said, of East Asian descent. But Michael Pack had a criminal history for um, improper use of a passport, and it appears that this was actually related to human trafficking and such. As he, as as you can see very clearly, he is a driver for escorts, and he's driving people like Shannon Gilbert to various places around the state of New York. And um, I mean, I say the state of New York because going from New York City on to Long Island, but there was a time when. There were some women from China that were being transported for the purposes of um, participating in prostitution, and Michael Pack had something to do with it, although he said he never even handled the passport that he was um, that had been in question for this improper use of a passport felony. But anyway, he, he seems very out of touch with reality, and they asked him, though, if he's ever done drugs, and I was shocked when he said no, that he's not a regular drug user, and... I get the impression, though, after reading the transcript, and it's just the words that are on the pages as opposed to, like, the audio, that he seemed like someone who was a heavy drug user who had his brain fried from drugs. I mean, you can't remember if you have a Bachelor of Arts or a Bachelor of Sciences. I don't care if 30 years have gone by. You wouldn't think that someone would be forgetting details like that. But as um, Michael Pack would continue to give testimony during this deposition, he said something that was very telling about Shannon Gilbert, and that is that he confirmed she had bipolar disorder, and he also shared something about her that was, I mean, very saddening, to be honest, that she did not take her meds for bipolar disorder because she thought when she was on her bipolar medication that she would gain weight. Remember, Shannon is working as an escort, as well as many of the people like the Gilgo Four, the unidentified Asian male, they're working in various aspects of sex work. So she's going to be paying a lot of attention to weight gains. So she thought she was gaining weight because of the bipolar medication. She didn't take it. And then they're asking Michael Pack, well, what did she do instead? And he said, alcohol, marijuana, in ecstasy. That was the way that she was medicating herself for the bipolar disorder. And I say medicating like um, in a total alternative self-remedy way, which apparently seems to, I mean, absolutely 
not recommending that. I mean, that's just an expression that some people use sometimes. Now, is it possible that these behaviors that we've been talking about, such as um, having this um, panic attack, running up and down, banging on people's doors saying, someone's trying to kill me, they're coming after me, is it possible that Shannon just had a manic episode, ran off into the marsh, was disoriented near a water source, and passed away? Um, especially when you hear some of these things. She has bipolar. She isn't medicating. And she's also um, using things like drugs and alcohol. And the big one, though, was they did ask Michael Pack, did she use cocaine? And he said, to his knowledge, no. I'm paraphrasing, but to his knowledge, no. But many people do cocaine. It seems like Shannon would have had a, a, a lot of access to cocaine. And in the last episode on the Long Island serial killer and the death of Shannon Gilbert, I was talking about um, the, some of the less common side effects of co cocaine use. Regular cocaine use can lead to auditory hallucinations, paranoia, panic attacks, full-blown psychosis. At this point, though, I think that Shannon would have been in the category of paranoia or a panic attack. The thing is, it may have been triggered by some actual physical abuse because the independent coroner that was hired by the Gilbert family attorney said that there were signs of strangulation. Or I, I, don't, I really believe they don't mean that she was strangled to death, but that someone had been strangling Shannon for some time. So w was that something that could have taken place during the, um, during the incident? Or, or during the incident at Joseph Brewster's house, the last client to see Sh Shannon. An interesting thing, though, in Michael Pack's deposition is that he says that he never sees the clients. He, like, he doesn't interact with them. And, of course, he's, like, covering his tracks. We know that that's not true because later on, I mean, he's in the house with Joseph Brewster and um, he, he's heard on the phone in the background as well as they're trying to... Uh, get him to get Shannon out of the house. I mean, Joseph Brewster is trying to get him to get Shannon out of the house. So, um, because they want to get her just away because he didn't like her behavior. He thought that she was, um, acting in a very, um, bizarre way. I'm really tempted to lean toward what the authorities have actually said, that they don't believe that she was murdered and there is some type of accidental death that went on but i don't know that as a fact when you have victims like the others from the long island serial killer particularly the gilgo four i don't think there's any doubt in anybody's mind about what happened to them it seems like they were definitely the victims of a serial killer and it's the same criminal operation it could also simply be that somebody is using that area as a serial killer graveyard, and I don't think that's a very controversial statement. Now, I think um, Tina posted something on Facebook suggesting that could this be a connection to a larger sex ring where people are making snuff films and then they're discarding the bodies? Oh, it's possible. And that's the frustrating thing about doing this multi-part series on the Long Island serial killer mystery. We have all this info about the death of Shannon Gilbert, and it's because of the searches for Shannon Gilbert that they discovered these other bodies, yet the the actual info on the Long Island serial killer is very, very minimal. I mean, we can make estimations, like people think that he's a Caucasian male. They think that he has some type of connection to a higher authority, whether it's the police or 
New York politics, we're not sure, but they think that he goes back and forth between Long Island and the city of New York regularly. Well, I mean, how many people do that, though? That really doesn't identify any particular suspects, but I'll be talking about the suspects much more tomorrow. Because this is a True Crime Talk radio episode, I'd like to go over to an article from womenshelpmagazine.com, which talks about how the mother of Shannon Gilbert, Mari Gilbert, actually went through a very tragic story of her own, and she met an untimely death. So, one more time, womenshealthmag.com. Mari Gilbert's own daughter, Sarah, murdered her, and she is now in jail. In 2016, Mari's 27-year-old daughter, Sarah Gilbert, fatally stabbed her mom and more than two, with more than 200 blows and hit her with a fire extinguisher, NBC reported. John Ray, an attorney for the family, said that Sarah Gilbert was mentally ill and had been hearing voices. Here's another thing about Shannon Gilbert. Her sister, Sarah Gilbert, had um, a variant of schizophrenia, so they definitely have mental illness in the family, and I am not faulting anyone for that. I'm not criticizing anyone for that, just stating it as a fact. He also said that Sarah had gone to her mom's house because she was hallucinating and ended up trying to kill her mom, who was trying to help her daughter, who, who was mentally ill. Sarah was eventually sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, according to the Daily Freeman. So, um, I mean, I think that it really is kind of quite, uh, perhaps even a harsh sentence, because the defense that was put forth by Sarah Gilbert was that she was not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. And while that one isn't used all the time, I mean, like, not everyone who can play that card is going to be found not guilty by mental disease or defect. Maybe she actually had a case for that. I mean, she is dealing with this variant of schizophrenia, and she was probably not in any fit state of mind, but let's keep going here. Since Mari's death, Sharia and Stevie, along with Ray, those are two other members, have continued their mother's work in seeking justice for Shannon. She was broken down and depressed, and she was a poor, poverty-stricken person, Ray told people of Mari. She was a single mom trying to raise kids and grandkids. She did what any mother would try to do for her kids. I just can't do it. This is not what Mari would have wanted. She pursued Shannon's case relentlessly. And um, there is still a Facebook page that is put up for Shannon Gilbert. And um, these th it's run by the second oldest sister in the family. And if you ever do watch the film Lost Girls, which is available on Netflix, they have um, they feature all three um, characters in the film, the, all three daughters there. And the, um, the middle daughter here, Sherry, is... Um, I guess you'd say she has somewhat of a minor role, a minor but very important role. The character that plays Sarah Gilbert, the one who would go on to murder her mother, barely says anything. She's just mostly detached from the other um, cast members, and she definitely is present, but she doesn't have a lot of speaking time. If you ever want to watch the film Lost Girls about the Long Island serial killer and Shannon Gilbert, one more time available on Netflix. And because this is the True Crime Talk radio segment, where we discuss many different stories. I would like to go on to something that is in a very different direction. I was watching some indoor football last weekend, and I happened to catch the name of a player, and his name was Damon Powell. And they mentioned that three or four or five years ago even, he got shot in the face and went on to make a full recovery. 
So let's hear a little bit more about that first. I'm really glad Damon was able to make a strong recovery, but this was um going back to the year 2015. Arizona Cardinals wide receiver Damon Pell Jr. suffered a gunshot during an incident on Friday night. According to the Associated Press via USA Today, Powell was in the driveway at his Ohio home when shots were fired. A University of Toledo Medical Center staffer said Saturday that she had no information to release about him, but the police said his injuries didn't appear to be life-threatening. Police say witnesses saw three men wearing masks in a gold-colored vehicle. The Arizona Cardinals have released a statement about Powell on their official website. We are aware that Damon Powell was the victim of a shooting last night in Toledo where he remains hospitalized. We have been in communication with his family to offer whatever support and resources we can provide. We still want to monitor and provide updates. Powell, who played college football at Iowa, was one of the 14 undrafted players the Cardinals signed in May of 2015. He was a big play threat in two years with the Hawkeyes. The good news is that they don't believe the injuries to be life-threatening. It is unclear how his career might be affected. Now, that was an article from 2015 by Bleacher Report. What actually happened to Damon Powell is that he was shot in the face, and one bullet even went through his jaw. And if you go over to his Wikipedia page, it even says not only was he shot in the jaw, but also in the neck, yet he's still playing football to this day. Big credit to him, and his uh, career in the NFL uh, was cut short, though, and then he went on to play for the Cedar Rapids Titans, and then the Sioux Falls Storm in the IFL, the Montreal Alouettes, who are in the Canadian Football League, and now he's with the Tucson Sugar Skulls in Arizona. I love indoor football. I just love sports, period. And I've also talked before on the channel about how I thought that someone needs to start a podcast about just the intersections between sports and true crime. And this is going to sound really weird, but we also need one about the intersections between sex workers and true crime. And I mean that in the sense of a victim's rights advocate thing for people like Shannon Gilbert and you would find that, um, well, what are the motivations about why people would make the choices in life that they do? And also, many people were turning a blind eye to the victims of the Long Island serial killer and individuals like Shannon Gilbert because they didn't believe that their stories were important. Well, those stories need to be told, and we also can do it in a very humanizing way. But about the True Crime and Sports podcast, I mean, a lot of aspects of the true crime and sports world are also downplayed. Like, people now have enormous amounts of money, and at the age of 22, when they sign an NFL contract, maybe an NBA contract, what do they do? Well, sometimes problematic behavior can take off. I do have one episode on the arrests of DeAndre Baker and Quentin Dunbar from 2020, which shows a very sour and unfortunate ending to two people's uh, promising career tracks, but also have episodes on something a little bit more tragic, and that is the shooting of Corey Ballantyne and the murder of his best friend, Dwayne Simmons. Corey Ballantyne was out celebrating getting uh, drafted into in the NFL, getting drafted by the New York Giants for the NFL, I should say. He was in from Washburn University, and he's out celebrating with his best friend, Dwayne Simmons, and some guy drove by and just started mouthing off and saying a bunch of uh, things. It's possible that some people offered to sell them drugs, but we're not really sure. And 
these guys are just out celebrating. They just said they didn't want anything to do with them. And a man named Frankie Mendez, Francisco Alejandro Mendez, pulled a gun and started shooting at them. Dwayne Simmons was murdered, and Corey Ballantyne was shot in the hip. And the last time I read up on this, I believe the bullet is actually still in him, but he went on to play in the NFL with the New York Giants and now is with the New York Jets. Um, he's been traded, but it's a very tragic story. However, many people were jumping to conclusions, and I've also seen this in the comments section. Other people said, did we learn nothing from Corey Ballantyne? We cannot jump to conclusions about how when athletes are involved with something like a shooting or something like um, just a crime is taking place and they want to play the blame game. Well, they must have been doing something illegal. So when I read this um, stuff about Damon Powell here, um, the uh, gentleman we've been talking about who was shot in the face, uh, jaw and neck, I mean, I'm just not going to jump to any conclusions about these activities. You got There are three men wearing hoodies and they're driving a gold car we'll just leave it at that i mean i don't think that that requires any speculation on my part that i highly doubt anything anything that damon powell did would have warranted that type of response but um as i said he's playing football to this day good for him some of the other sports uh crimes that i've covered on this channel were, were crimes involving athletes are the murder of Steve McNair, which is a very sad one. Steve McNair was murdered by his mistress, Sahil Kasimi, and um, he was actually just asleep on the couch, and she shot him. And um, Some people think that it is just a very dark ending to a very, very well-done well athletic career. Steve McNair was a truly um, gifted athlete. He was one of those country-strong football players, and... Um, he just had natural athletic gifts, and he played in the NFL for a long time, most notably for his time with the Tennessee Titans, and of course back in his days of Alcorn State in the college years. But um, he he met a very tragic and untimely death, and rest in peace to him as well. Another one I've talked about is the murder of Fred Lane, and when I did that episode, I misstated something, but first to just introduce that fred lane was murdered by his wife deidre lane he was coming home his keys were in the lock the door was turned and she shot him twice with a i believe was a shotgun it's been a while since i've read that one but with fred lane though there were two major motivations for the murder the first is that he had a five million dollar insurance policy and the second motivation was that deidre lane was a woman who um well she had a brother and she was a woman who had a family member who did some illegal activities, particularly bank robbing. And it's possible that Fred Lane just simply did not want to cooperate with the story to cover up some of her brother's illegal activities. So she had two motivations. I said that um, in the episode I did on Fred Lane that I had misstated something. I thought that Deidre Lane was arrested multiple times, that she went to prison for a short time, she got out, and then she was trying to do community volunteer work and she did something illegal that sent her back to jail but i think that that is been listed as not um i just i think that i i had read a source that provided some false information there and always gonna try to be accurate but um another more tragic story that i've talked about on this channel is the murder of sean taylor who was um just someone who signed his NFL contract, and he was trying to live his life, and he's living a lavish lifestyle. He's keeping money in little bags that have ties on them, and that's how he's uh, 
paying people who do uh, things for him, and some people learned about that, and they tried to rob him, and Sean went to grab a machete that he had for uh, self-defense, and then they shot him, and he passed away from, uh, he passed away. I'm, I don't want to get, um, too, uh, far out, because it's been a while since I've read those details as well, but I believe that, um, the fatal shot actually went through his leg, but, uh, don't quote me on that. When it comes to athletes and the challenges of becoming professional, I'm also reminded of someone named Cecil the Diesel Collins, who has also appeared on this channel. I have an episode about him. And he was arrested for a variant of breaking and entering. It was called unauthorized entry. And his excuse was he broke into a woman's apartment because he wanted to watch her sleep. He just wanted to watch her in the dark. And I talk about how it sounds like that on old Clay Aiken song. If I were invisible, then I could just watch you in your room. And he was sentenced for like, um, I forget if it was 13 years or 15 years. I think it, but he, he spent more than a decade in prison for that. And what he talked about was, like coming out of prison, was that he had gotten so caught up with being the star, all the attention is on him, even back when he's in college. I mean, because many of these athletes who are playing college football can see themselves on national television, they're national superstars, they're known very widely throughout the country, and that stuff does go to their head, and they feel like they're larger than life. Perhaps some of them in high school even get special privileges. The athletes in my high school definitely had special privileges, but that would be a case of when somebody just thought that he was untouchable, invisible and untouchable, why not? And the judge gave him a very harsh sentence because he didn't want someone to get away with it just because he was an athlete. And I should say that the unauthorized entry charge happened after Cecil Collins was already drafted by the Miami Dolphins. He was thought to have been a very big risk, but they took the chance on him, and he ended up doing something illegal, and then he was sent to jail. Now, from that episode, there was a prison guard at the place where Cecil Collins was held named David Naquanco. And I often quote him by saying that you can tell when someone is being honest about their rehabilitation. And he's saying because he worked with prisoners all the time and they've um he talks to them day in and day out. He's like, you can tell when someone is putting on an act and when someone is just making up a story just because they want to get out of prison. Or you can tell when people are honest about their rehabilitation. And I would just like to leave you guys with that. Like, think about that in the true crime world. Can you tell when someone is being honest and remorseful for the actions that they've done, whether you're watching them on a talk show or you're uh, in going through YouTube videos, or you see somebody in a courtroom, maybe it's been filmed for something like Court TV, True TV, or something like that, HLM, you can tell when someone is being honestly remorseful or not. Well, um, thank you for listening to this episode here, and talking about the Long Island serial killer, as well as some many other uh, subjects, I've said it once and I'll say it again, the Long Island serial killer is just like a shadow in the dark. Very, very difficult to pin down specific points and information, but tomorrow, if you tune in, we'll look at some of these suspects, so please uh, feel free to uh, 
to check out that episode, you can always hit the like button and subscribe. And if you go over to the Professor Dad channel this weekend, to anyone who's listening in the future, you can also visit the Professor Dad channel. There should be a recorded episode. There's going to be something pretty good out there. So I've heard. Just a little rumor uh, that going around. All right, well, that's all for me now. I'll see you guys over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.